Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Podcasts. In this episode, we will be talking about navigating uncertainty in times of crisis and what that means for leadership in today's world. I am delighted to welcome David Lynch, who has been working in humanitarian operations for the Red Cross since 1993 and has held various positions in the headquarters of the International Committee of the Red Cross and the International Federation of Red Cross, plus the National Office of the Icelandic Red Cross, and has also worked in disaster management services in the Europe Zone and participated in the UN Consultative Group on Military and Civil Defence Assets. David, you've lived in Iceland for 30-odd years now, and you are an internationally certified project manager and a certified coach, and you dedicate your time to supporting people to think differently and build resilience in times of uncertainty, a cause which clearly is of utmost necessity today, in supporting people both in their immediate physical and mental needs. Before the show, we were discussing the need to build a common frame and to look at values. And you recounted your anecdotes around a lady who gave you her theory of values and that value-led project management was the way to solve complex problems. And we got to talking about the informal way of working and the written codes of cultures, and that it was fatal to come in thinking that you knew it all and that you should come in being curious and ask questions. So I wanna start with this question. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit more about that and what you learnt about how you should show up and which questions you can ask? I mean, I learnt about this going into another into other cultures. If you go to Afghanistan, you want to know why does Afghanistan function the way that it does? Mm. Surely to God they could have solved the problem. I mean, any, you know, like, but it's because of the way the culture works. So there are all reasons why it's like this mm. for every. And it doesn't necessarily make sense, not necessarily functional in any way, shape, sense, or form. But there are reasons for the why things things are the way they are. And I learned very early on that the magic question "how" is the great question. So you want to, most people go in and ask the question "why." Why is it like this? Mm. And that is a fatal question. Why? Because it brings, <laughs> why because is it, it a brings, fatal question? It's a fatal question because it brings you straight to to beliefs. Okay. So. The reason why women can't go out on their own is because I believe mm-hmm. that God created women to be inferior. So you're playing right into the hands of the... You're playing right into the hands of preconceived ideas. Mm. The why question asks people to drag up justifications from before. It's old thinking. It's what they've been taught. And they've mm. been through the discussion over and over again. And many of the people, when you talk, when you, you to pick on the, the classic ones, particularly in the Muslim world, like why do women have to wear veils, which is a ridiculous, after a while, once you've been in an Arabic country, it becomes a a stupid question. It's Mm. an iconic question. Sorry, I'm probably, I'm talking with a woman now Mm. who's probably thinking, how could this middle-aged man be quite so blasé about the (laughs) fatal subjugation of women's rights? And there's the other side of that argument, which is around that. Mm. And it's iconic. Mm. Iconic. But when you get inside the culture, the, the problem is not necessarily where I, whether I wear a veil or not, because I've been into cultures where, the where, okay, now we're talking about feminism, but I remember going to Iran, mm. and I was just so impressed by all the women there, because they were really being subversive. I've never met a more subversive group of women. <laughs> Give me an example. What do you mean by really subversive? Well, it, well it's, there's, there's, there were just desperately 
Oh, so I went. I went to um, so it was an Iranian company who was running, who was who had had done a tremendous job despite all of the sanctions. They made a project where they managed to make switchgear for um, an onshore and offshore oil plant. So what? But this is a big deal because it's the first time they'd ever made in Iran switchgear that could which would join the two factories together. Usually, it's two separate systems, if not three. Oh yeah, so you're 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 used to these engineering stories. So yes. you know, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm a process geek. So you know, and it's a five billion US dollar project in whole system. It's a five million dollar cost per hour that wow. the switching system is down. Wow. So they made an integrated switching system which controlled all of the flow, all of the switches, everything, a control system from the drill through the pipeline onto the onshore refinery. It's a wow. massive undertaking, and it was done in Iran. So they were basically completing against Siemens and these Japanese companies with the top flight stuff. And we went to the factory, and it was in the, it was a back of a cigarette packet job. It was a it was a crazy. The company was run by a woman. So how did she get that amount of potency and manage to do that on the back of a cigarette packet, which I know is were figurative? Good, they, were good, they were great leaders. There was a tremendous family. It was a family business, right? Okay. There was a, there's a lot. There was a lot that was right. There was a lot that was wrong. It was a family business. The hmm. dad had died. She'd taken it over. The team was still around. They believed in the family. They believed in the business. And they were really proud to be Iranian. I just, I just loved it. There yeah. was, yes, we can mm. in a good way. Mm. Brings you back to the really values piece, though, doesn't it? It brings you back to what you were saying about values earlier. Around that's what's going to get yeah. you through complex project management. Yeah, and then they managed to, and then they had a solving problem-solving mindset. Mm. So they had tremendous problem getting parts in from abroad, and then during the time when the when the uh, Americans put sanctions on them and the uh, Iranian currency fell through the floor and they had all sorts of, of currency exchange problems, importing problems, exporting problems, but their stakeholder management was incredible. So they managed to make it work and the team were really committed and, and the research and development team was, was really outstanding for the way that they worked together. But they were also operating an environment which was not conducive to this type of private enterprise mm. either. They managed to find their way. They made friends with ministers. They had powerful people who had opened ways for them. But this is way, this is the way business is done. And they had half of their project managers were women. And, and it what, was lovely. And what did that bring to the table, though? Because you're saying that you, there's clearly something well, behind that, that women bring something different to the table? I didn't. Which, I didn't. No, I'm okay. not, not so sure. I'm saying that, that these women were all subversive. Mm. So they were they were not taking no for an answer. So one of the small things was every time this lady, she was very elegant, and she used to wear a silk hijab, okay, not the ordinary nylon hijab. Yeah. Well, of course, darling, silk is very slippy on the hair. Of course, yeah. <laughs> normally one would have pins to pin it, but unfortunately, that silks would keep shifting. It would, and she would be constantly. They would be constantly rearranging the hijab the whole mm. day long which was exactly a provocation to all of to everybody else because it, it drew attention, attention to the fact that their hair was there yeah and that they were out there and they were doing it mm. it's a small thing it's it's not the end of the world but underneath it they were doing the work they were doing the business but they mm. weren't taking any any business and they were just playing around with it 
it, 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 where they were pushing the boundaries every single time. Yeah. And I just thought it was funny. And they laughed. They were laughing. They said, oh, these bloody hijabs. Honestly, <laughs> these stupid fat men. <laughs> yeah, but they're basically going, they're playing with the cultural, the unwritten codes, aren't they, of the cultural assumptions yeah. there? Yeah. Hmm. And each time, every single restaurant or every single time we went out, she was constantly fid- fiddling with her headdress and deliberately showing her, her hair, which was apparently extremely provocative and yeah. provocative and banned. And she was doing it. She was doing it to upset. Most of the people around us were liberal and they all laughed and they clapped. Okay. Do you see? Yeah. It was, there, were, there were the one or two old guard people. And then mm. this thing about power is entrenched into the system and people hold on to the old style of doing things because it supports their power base. Mm. So there's another element in there as well. It's the new versus the old. Mm. I've seen this in so many times in, in Afghanistan. The reason why the mullahs and the men particularly are so frightened is that they're losing power. It's not that their mm. families are going to get stronger. If you if you could show them that they get more money, they'd be the first ones to send everybody to school. Yeah, but it's the shift in power dynamics, isn't it? It's the shift of power. And you see this with mm. immig- when you see the immigrant families coming in, there's not a role for the older men in the family anymore. Mm. Mm. Or the role has changed in a way that they're not able to cope with. And it produces a very uh, toxic reaction. And what what's created that change in your in your opinion? Is it like the digits, the onset of interconnected worlds, or is it just shifts in in generations, or what? I think I mean the the biggest thing is is the movement of people. Mm. So um, yeah, migration. Mm. There's a lot of migration going on. Let's put it like that. And we're becoming much more mixed up more than we ever were. Mm. And the, the the result, the other part of it is that also that all of these values can be transferred backwards and forwards through the internet. So the internet has a lot to say. The connectivity, mm. the digitalization has a lot to say. Do you think it creates voices in systems that weren't there before? That's a loaded question. Yeah. Do, well, do, do you think, because it has, for me, it's created a platform for people to have a stronger voice than they would normally have in a system if they're not necessarily fitting into the traditional model of the system. So if I just take a, let's just take organizations, for example, if you want to think and act differently in an organization, creating communities of change is a great way of creating a different voice in that system and turning it up. It doesn't have to be political and it doesn't have to be controversial. However, you can create quite a lot of impact with that voice. And that's the sense of my question. Yeah, I mean, digital is just a tool. The theory, whichever way it is, is you mobilize people at the grassroots level. That's the classic mantra of developmental work. And it's the classic mantra also of lean yeah, and the Japanese got it when they started in Toyota. They empowered the, the guys on the to pull the string. Mm. We all know these stories, but it's mm. all about that. And they're the people that are doing the. They're the people that are doing the work. So the people that are doing the work know how to do it, presumably. Yes. Mm. You know, so it's 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 tapping into that. But the the challenge for managers is to tap into that at scale. Mm. You know, but I can see it, for instance, in community groups where you you have to. It's it's not necessary. You have to be, you have to do it. You have to bring different groups together in order to allow channels for the voices to be expressed. Because in a lot of cases, you know, the dynamics are is that those people lower down have less voice. Yes. Yeah. That they don't have opportunity to speak. So, it, you know, like in town meetings, in particularly very traditional societies, the women will say nothing. 
Yeah. They might speak up when they go home. In the house, mm. you might hear it. Mm. Or mm. in other environments. And this brings me back to the point of, of knowing the environment you're going into, to knowing the, the channels, of, the formal and informal channels mm. of communication and how things are structured and why it's like it is and how it works. Mm. How it works is really important. Yeah, so we're back to the how question as opposed to the why question. Yeah, because, you know, when you talk about different groups, they're not totally powerless. No, clearly. Absolutely, mm. 100% powerless. They're, in many cases, they haven't realised how powerful they are. Yeah, they're just not empowered, should I say. They're not empowered. So take an example in the Western society would be dustbin workers. Mm. Uh, in France, you know it very well. If you don't, yeah. I mean, if the dustbin workers go on strike after 10 days, it's uh, chaos. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But You see and if I look at sort of, because you've worked a lot in disaster sort of situations and more crisis times, does that yeah. change? Does that change? Do people react differently in terms of how bold they get around around speaking out and speaking, stepping outside their cultural yeah. um, norm? Let's put it that way. Yeah, because, uh, because in the middle of a crisis, th- things are shattered. Mm. So all of the power structures are also undermined at that moment in time. And mm. in every catastrophe or disaster, there's an opportunity, there's a moment, because all of the structures have loosened, yeah. sorry, have been struck. And in many cases, the disasters are a result of faults in the system, or mm-hmm. they're amplified by faults in the system. In the same way as COVID has exposed all of the weaknesses in Western healthcare systems. Healthcare systems, yeah. Uh, also, our transport, also our, um, it's also exposed weaknesses in our, our supply chain. Mm. And what do you see um, as the biggest challenge in the weaknesses that have been created across those systems? Because you deal with that day in, day out. Well, it requires policy <laughs> because a lot of the time the policymakers have understood mm. that it's there. They've just got away with it. Mm-hmm. They know that you know, mm. they know that old people's homes are not really being top of the list. They haven't had the money. There hasn't been there hasn't been a policy decision to promote excellence in health in old people's homes. So old people's homes sit somewhere in the middle or to the little bit to the bottom in the funding ladder. Mm. So can you be surprised that the people that you're employing in the healthcare are not as well-trained and as not as competent as you imagine and are understaffed and overstrained? Mm. And then when you get a threat like COVID come in, can you be surprised that the first places that get hit are not the hospitals, which have all the disinfectant and all the staff and all the rest of it, but it's the healthcare homes where people are as vulnerable mm. but in a more exposed environment and do you see uh, policymakers writing a policy as something that's going to counteract that quickly enough? Yeah, this is going to be the ch- this is the post-COVID mm. conundrum, isn't it? Yeah, because we, this is the new normal. Yeah, this has got to be the new normal. Mm. We can't go back to the way it was. Mm. So everything is up for grabs about the way we live because mm. the way this disease has spread, it's mm. spread because of the way we live. It's spread because we travel so much. It's, it's spread because everybody in France wants to go to Phuket on holiday <laughs> instead of going to, mm. and then everybody in London wants to go to, um, I don't know, Cap d'Azur or wherever, mm. I don't know. Mm. You see? But that's yes. how it's, it managed to spread around the world at top speed because of the, of the communication bridges between China and, and, mm. and Europe. I'm not saying that it should be stopped, but... <laughs> And, and do you believe in the in the more sort of the newer models coming out that are more interconnected, the more abundant models like the donut model? And do you think they hold an answer in terms of managing the way humans are living 
and and using planet resources? I don't know what the donut model is, actually, to tell you the truth. Okay, so it's essentially a new economic model where it's not based on GDP, but it's based on the donut is you stay within that space and it's a more equal, abundant model as opposed to the rich getting richer. Yeah, I mean... Okay, so there, I mean, there, this is the conundrum of capitalism and, and this, this endless, infinite growth pattern, mm. because we all know that resources are finite, but yeah. we seem to think that we can use them without end. Mm. And the justification we said is, well, because, we're te- because of technology, we're able to use them more efficiently. You know, mm. uh, I remember there was a project in Pakistan, someone was talking about, and they were saying, yeah, this is great, because there's like almost no emissions. There's like two... 98% that's uh, efficient removing of all carbon dioxide particles, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we can argue about that. The engineers mm. had a fine time arguing about what can, what's a particle, what's not a particle, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. the standards of emissions and yeah. stuff like that. But the, under, the, the underlying point was it still used bloody coal. Yeah, so you're still using natural resource. You're still using coal. Yeah, but it's really environmental. It's clean coal. It's... Coal. <laughs> so obviously that's the you know that's the fault in that argument. Mm, mm. So early on in the industrial revolution, you could argue that we got away with it, but now we can't. Watershed moment. So mm. so there has to be a new there has to be a new a new model, and we have to understand. I don't well in terms of let the econo- let the economists sort it out. But I was very impressed with the idea of the happiness. So GDP mm. as a measure of success has always been interesting but why not measure happiness and i'm really happy to understand that governments are paying more attention to the quality of life mm. and the happiness of the people mm. so if we can we can understand what that is and then we have to then decide what what does happiness mean for us yeah and how do you measure is, yeah going back to values again mm, absolutely so what's valuable for us so mm. is it, and this is a very good question, is it more valuable for us to go out and to seek out all of the most exciting experiences that we can have in our life? So it means bungee jumping, flying to the moon, having holidays, going skiing. Mm. Okay. Very individualistic, mm. very hedonistic, very egoistic. Or is the greatest value in life good health and family relationships? And well, I think that's for me, that's what I call the COVID question, because I think COVID has created a space where people have had the time and the inclination to go inside and ask ask themselves these questions, which I which is why I think it's so disruptive, not just the system is being disrupted, but I think we're disrupting the system with these questions, particularly. And I don't know how much you see of it in your work. You do a lot of humanitarian operations, a lot of sort of natural disaster work. What inspired you to work in that space? And was it around this subject? No, it wasn't around that subject. I always, I, um, It was that I wanted to do some good in the world. Mm-hmm. It comes from a very altruistic upbringing. Okay. You know, so I felt that that was a, a reasonable purpose in life. Mm. I thought it was good. And, and also it was exciting mm. and it's, it fit my skill set. Mm. Because I think the biggest shift that's happening now is the shift from individual to collective, like you say, yeah. across across the board. And I think that means altruism. It also means purpose. And it also means exactly what you were yeah. saying about do we measure something different that is seen as soft and not valuable financially like happiness? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big 
paradigm shift for uh, across the board and particularly for businesses. It's very interesting to understand how you see people and institutions yeah. dealing with that question. Yeah, I was always driven by a sense of justice. Now mm. I'm driven more by a sense of uh, empathy or compassion. Yeah. Mm. And if anything, that's what I've learned. I, I, I mean, in the wars, I learned that uh, there's a, something I tell my, as a story I tell myself is that in the first time I ended up in a war situation, I spent a lot of time trying to find out why it was like it was. Mm. Why, why, mm. why? Mm. Why these injustices were. I was tormenting myself with it. And then after a while, and I think having talked to older people as well, I realized that there's no point. Mm. No I, point I trying to figure it out. To change it. Yeah. And just trying to figure out why people were so cruel to each other. Don't waste your energy on that. Waste your energy with how can I make life better for them? How can I, how can I reduce the amount of suffering? Mm. And, and, and when I say it like that, it sounds so cliched as all also, <laughs> you know, reduce the amount of suffering because the suffering in the world, as it <laughs> as it manifests itself, it's extremely banal. But but I think yes and no because there is so much suffering that happens in these systems, whether it's world systems, whether it's organisational systems, whether it's community systems. There is an element of people trying to figure out how to be the best, how to have more power, how to make it work, as opposed to the how of how can we create more momentum in the community and how can we create more well being. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I feel very strongly about that, which is clearly where we, you know, where, where we, we uh, share a passion and join. But I feel very strongly about that in general, but particularly in organisations and communities. I think that's the way forward is having the distance and humility and empathy, essentially, to say, OK, let's try and look at how we can do this different, to use your, to use your analogy between why and how. And for me, that's the missing yeah. link today in terms of organisational culture. Because the systems themselves, so a lot of the cruelty I've seen is systemic. Mm. A lot of the cruelty I've seen is also is a, the system is the it's a apologize the system's a pretext. I mean, people have used. A, I mean, a lot of <laughs> it's not me; it's the system. You know, yeah. and when you get down to the so what came up for me in the Red Cross was that that the Red Cross is that for me it was the sum total of individual stories. So every person you met had their own individual story, which made it so profound for me mm. and which what makes the work so vital. You don't step back and try and imagine what quarter of a million people looks like. Mm. You can't do no. that. No. But what you can do is stand in front of the family and say, here is the father who lost his house. Here is the mum, and here are the kids. Mm. And you can hear their individual stories, and they're all different. They all need different things. Yeah. And and it it was just it, it's it's beautiful to be able to bring that amount that degree of care to people who otherwise could become just lost in a system. They could be lost lost in a jail system mm. where they they get arrested and then. Ten months later, someone's lost their file, and and but they can't get out, and and so on and so forth, mm. and all of the issues which, which come around that. I mean, you know, one of the saddest things we had to do was that people have been in jail for such a long time, the system wouldn't allow them pocket money, so they couldn't wow. get to see the doctor. They wow. couldn't. Well, you know, they couldn't. Not necessarily. They could go and see a doctor if they were ill, but they couldn't see someone to get new glasses. So mm. you had people that were in for 10, 15 years. Are obviously losing their sight, and they couldn't read because they weren't allowed to get glasses. And I think you're like, 
Yeah, so back to basic human needs almost. Yeah, back to really, really uh, story upon story of, of this type of stuff, which breaks your heart. Mm. But you your... can solve it if you care for other people. You, you can. Yeah, you I can. can't believe in that. And we can't be cruel to people if you care for them, because mm. so much of the cruelty was callous. Mm. It was so callous. It's people that didn't care. And I've met people like that, and it scared the living daylights out of me. Yeah, because there's no limits, is there, to that? Oh, there is no limit. Mm. Once you go down that path, you you can do really quite terrible things. Mm. And what's your biggest learning, David, from seeing what you see of navigating through natural disasters and crises? What's your biggest learning for community building and leading communities? You know, the, the thing that I always took away with me was the fact that although I wanted to change the world, I wanted to make life better. And you can do that by influencing policy. Yeah. So I think one of my pr- proudest moments for me was when I was able to influence people at the Geneva level mm-hmm. to consider a polio outbreak as a national emergency. Mm-hmm. So up until then, according to the bureaucracy, an outbreak of polio was not considered to be an emergency. But the consequences of polio coming back into Africa yeah. were huge. Huge, yeah. So we argued it and we argued it and argued it and we changed the policy, which meant that money flowed to stop polio breaking out because Africa was more or less, there was only, there was, there was like South Sudan and there was Nigeria where, mm. where polio was endemic and everywhere else was clean, more or less. Mm. And it was cut and it was it's exploding in those areas because of uh, migration. Do you imagine if polio had broken out and had rolled back all of mm. the good work that had been done? What a so fantastic I'm, achievement. I've changed change policy there. Yeah. But but on the other side, when you're working, when you're working in the field or when you're working, you only can touch the people closest to you. Mm. That's what I found out. So right. we had a team. And I reckon that if I was able to positively impact the eight people that I was working with in my nearest community in the team, and then they would amplify that out, then I had done a good job. Okay. So, so if, you change, if you want to change people's net, yeah. If you want to change people's minds and attitudes and allow people to go forward to do other better things, mm. to amplify. So you've amplified something eight times and then it amplifies eight, you know, exponentially from there mm. you can you can really touch the lives of, of eight people and it's through personal interaction okay so i'm hearing personal connection i'm also hearing yeah. small is beautiful in my language so start small and, yeah. and have a bigger impact like that and also yeah. the how i love that analogy between why and how is the policy is the how so go for how you can actually make a difference and do it differently as opposed to trying to figure out you know the, the strategy and so what would be your last call to action, therefore, for leaders, either in business organisations or in societal communities who are looking to start a movement, let's put it that way, to mm. have that type of impact in their organisation or their environment? Tell it the way it is. Okay. Thank you. I have, therefore, nothing to add to that. I think we've already heard from you the power of stories and, and human connection and showing up authentically in terms of just say it like it is. Yeah, say it like it is. The best leaders do that. And the people you're working with will know if you're telling the truth or not. Yeah, absolutely agree. Excellent. Thank you very much. And 
David, where can people get in touch with you, find out more about what you do? And Well, I have a LinkedIn profile. Okay. So you just have to search David Lynch in Reykjavik. Okay. If you forget Reykjavik, then you'll get David Lynch in California, the film director. <laughs> okay, choice. <laughs> so, you know, he's just winning on my social media. <laughs> so you have to just put in David Lynch in Reykjavik and you'll see my LinkedIn file and, and that's that's where I am. I'm okay. not more public than that. I'm just a small guy. Okay. With a big impact. Okay, thank you very much, David. Thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your review. So it's bye from me for now, and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk.